I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I have been a very long time listener of podcasts, kind of kind of since the beginning of their existence. And that's not a humble brag. It's it's just the truth. Like for years in the era before podcasts, I listened to NPR anytime I was getting ready for work or doing housework, cooking, or, you know, just kind of hanging out at home alone. I liked hearing voices and I liked learning stuff while I was doing other things. And NPR was my constant companion when Dylan was a baby and it was just the two of us day after day. And in fact, one of my goals was like, okay, I need to get into a fine financial position where I can support NPR every month, even if it's just like $3 a month, because this work means so much to me because the hosts of all of the NPR shows, they, they became like the other adults in the room for me when I was living alone, just a small child. So Imagine my delight when podcasts became an option for listening, because it was like even more options for learning things, hearing stories, and feeling a connection to someone far away who, you know, has no idea who I am, but has an impact on my life. (laughs) Maybe that's the weird part of it all, but those podcast hosts and guests and all the people on NPR, they were part of a one-sided relationship for me that really really meant a lot to me, seriously. There's one podcast in particular that really inspired me to create Close Horse. It's called You're Wrong About. I'm sure many of you are already listeners, and if you're not, I'll just say my Gateway episode was about Tanya Harding, and you should definitely listen to it. I was hooked after that. You're Wrong About really resonated with me because it was just two smart, funny people, Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs, researching stuff and debunking a lot of sort of like long-held media and pop culture narratives. It, it didn't have the slickness of an NPR-produced podcast with musical interludes. There was no Ira Glass around or a massive staff, you know. It wasn't about true crime or politics or comedy, which, you know, for a long time, that was the bulk of podcasts. They were either something produced by NPR or they were true crime, politics, or comedy. And it was kind of lo-fi in terms of production. You know, it was just two people talking. It sounded pretty good, but it wasn't complicated. It felt like something I could do, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. It just felt like, huh, like real average people with a story to tell could maybe do it. In 2020, when I was sitting in my unair conditioned row house in South Philly, sweating my butt off and panicking about what was going to happen to us next now that one, I didn't have a job anymore, and two, there was a refrigerated morgue trailer parked outside the hospital a few blocks from our house, I was also, while panicking, thinking about starting a podcast that debunked what fashion, clothing, shopping, and style mean to us as individuals and and a society. And you're wrong about made me feel like I could do that. And to be honest, being a guest on you're wrong about would be a dream come true for me. It still holds up. I also just have to say, I would also love to be on a very different show uh, about lifetime movies. That's called mother. May I sleep with podcast. Also one I recommend these are my dreams. Okay. (laughs) But podcasts are important to me. Anyway, there was an episode of You're Wrong About, well, more of a conversation during an episode of You're Wrong About, 
I'm pretty sure I listened to it, I don't know, like six months or so after launching Close Horse. And their conversation really resonated with me as a person who had previously kind of, I don't know, like toiled in obscurity, you know, like I didn't, I didn't often have a lot of interaction with people I didn't know. And suddenly six months into Close Horse or maybe a little bit longer, I was having interactions every day with people who I didn't know in real life. I have this very specific memory of listening to this conversation in our bathroom in Burden Hand while I was detangling my hair. And both hosts were talking about how hard it is to balance the constant feedback from strangers on the internet with their mental health and, you know, getting work done. One of them said something like, the human brain just isn't designed for constant feedback from strangers. And they went on to talk about how one shitty review on Apple Podcasts sits with them way longer than 100 kind messages from listeners. And wow, I felt both of those sentiments so hard. I mean, I feel sick every time I have to get an annual performance review at work, even when I know I'm working hard and doing a good job. I've actually very seriously considered calling off work on those days, but I knew it would just be rescheduled. So it was kind of like pull the bandaid off really fast and get it over with. But performance reviews are only like once a year, right? Now imagine that you get a performance review every day, many times a day in the form of social media comments, Instagram DMs, emails, episode reviews, weird posts where someone tags you to just talk about how stupid you are without addressing you directly. That's so weird to me. It's just like you're getting a performance review, all this feedback coming from all directions 24 hours a day. And 99.9% of this feedback is from people you don't know. Just total strangers who are now a bigger part of your life because they wanted to tell you what they think of you. And it's sort of like this burden you have to take on because you create content that people consume. You're not asking for feedback, advice, criticism. Once again, I'm a person who literally many times thought about calling in sick on the day I was getting my performance review, but there it is arriving in your inbox every hour, all night long, all day long. And guess what? On top of that, not only do you get this steady stream of feedback, you have to do the unpaid labor of responding to this constant feedback, hoping that you can make the sender feel seen and heard while also figuring out how to solve the problem they're seeing. Sometimes it's easy to fix the situation to make the person feel better. And sometimes it's not, but either way, it's like a lot of extra work that wouldn't exist if you didn't put the content out there in the first place. And I would add when you start a podcast, or I'm assuming many influencers and other content creators and other platforms feel the same way, you don't realize or know that you will spend hours and hours every week just responding to feedback. And it's also hard for me, I think, as a people pleaser. On one hand, I will tell you, I receive so many kind comments and encouraging messages every day from many of you, and I... It means so much to me. I mean, I save them because they mean so much to me. I have a folder on my computer that is just 
positive, encouraging, just incredible messages from all of you. It's nice to feel to feel cared for and heard. And, and that's not something that I'm even like really used to. That's the other thing. Remember, not only was I kind of toiling in obscurity as a corporate cog for a really long time, I also grew up in this family that like, you know, didn't really love me, right? I didn't get a lot of love and affection growing up other than from my grandma. And so when people are kind to me, it is like, uh, I just want to like swim in that kindness because it was in such short supply for so much of my life. So the amazing feedback, it means a lot, right? It's less scary. Although every time I get an email and I'm about to open it or a DM or I'm about to hit post on something on Instagram or TikTok, I have this moment where my heart pounds a little bit harder, a little bit louder because I'm afraid of what will happen next, what people will say, what I will read, what will just what will happen, right? What will the feedback be? It's really, it's a lot. As a person who is a chronic people pleaser and a person with really incredible anxiety, it's a lot. But meeting new people who take the time to reach out, to connect with me, whether it's good or bad, that's one of the best parts of working on Close Horse. It's interesting. I have all this anxiety. I'm such a people pleaser. I hate performance reviews, but man, I really love getting to know people. And I know when someone reaches out with a kind message, they want to connect to, they want to have that relationship because I know how uncomfortable reaching out to a stranger can be. I know it feels risky and scary. Like rejection is right around the corner. So when someone takes the time to write me an email, I'm beyond excited to talk to them. But like I said, I'm also a people pleaser and I'm working really hard to change that, but it's going to be like seriously decades of therapy, I think, that I can't necessarily afford. So I'm trying to work it out on my own. (laughs) But that means that every negative piece of critique is agonizing. It makes me question if I'm good enough to do what I do. It makes me wonder if maybe I'm just a raging egomaniac who thinks I'm doing something useful, but really, I'm just wasting everyone's time. And of course, I'm sure many of you operate the same way. My mind immediately goes to the most negative perspective on this, right? On my work. And I'm definitely my worst critic, as I'm sure many of you are to yourselves. You know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome in there. There's a lot of just, uh, I don't want to be that like ego and maniacal CEO that I worked with at so many jobs who just has no (laughs) self-awareness. You know, I'm not that person. I'm like hyper aware. Over the past few months, I've stopped responding to Instagram DMs. Why? Because they were eating up hours of my day every day. I was answering questions and handling requests to be a guest on the show or finding information for people, providing comfort to people with eco-anxiety or shitty bosses and reading the stories and experiences of others. And if you think about it, I have more than 30,000 followers on Instagram and there's just one of me. So even if only 60 people message me in one day and each response takes five minutes to respond to, well, that's 300 minutes of work, AKA five hours. I guess that's why the fancy successful podcasts hire people to handle that kind of stuff. And here's the thing is that On Instagram, like nine out of 10 DMs that I respond to, especially like it's sort of like the more 
egregious the amount of information or or work the sender is asking of me, uh, the less likely they are to respond to me or even acknowledge that they received my response. And so it felt like I was just spinning my wheels, you know? What I have been doing, because I do want to keep the lines of communication open, because after all, I love our community and I want to be a contributing active part of it, is I've been encouraging everyone to email me, which feels positively old-timey. It feels like I'm asking people to write me a physical letter and track down a stamp and somehow put it in a mailbox where it'll be mailed to me. I mean, that is where we are in 2024. Now, what's interesting about this is only about 10% of people who DM me and get the message saying they should email me will actually go on to send an email. But I think that filters out the people who maybe really don't care that much about connecting. They're just sort of reacting. And I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. And trust me, I still get a lot of emails about mispronouncing words, misspelling something in the show notes, from PR people who want their client to be on the show, from big greenwashing gross companies that want to partner Someone once sent me feedback about the way I dress, which I didn't really need that one, but thanks for thinking of me. And so many other messages, right? And I respond to all of them because I think it's important to do that. Now, do I respond to them on the podcast? No. And I rarely show these messages to other people in my life because, you know, it's like I'm taking care of it. I'm moving on. Every once in a while, there'll be a particular quandary that I need to discuss with Dustin, but in general, no one knows about it, right? Well, last month I received an email that was a little bit more complicated. It touched on many issues, many concerns. And I've been thinking about it for like, I don't know, five weeks now, maybe six weeks. It didn't help that it arrived just as I was coming down with COVID and feeling anxious about moving. So I had lots of time to think about it in bed and while packing boxes. So yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about this email and I finally talked to Dustin about it, I don't know, like three weeks in. And at that point, because I had and have been on a whole emotional journey about this email from despair to rage, to frustration, to self-hatred, back to rage, frustration, a whole, a whole cycle. (laughs) Uh, At that particular point in my emotional journey with this email, I was definitely in the despair uh, stage. I felt convinced that it was time to end Close Horse, that perhaps everything that could be said was said. And now I was just kind of fucking it up and I could, I don't know, start a podcast about the 1991 Oliver Stone movie, The Doors, which by the way, Dustin and I had joked about doing four years before we started Close Horse. So it's definitely an option. (laughs) Well, Dustin was elated that I was finally ready to do that whole podcast dissecting the doors with him. I mean, seriously, we've watched this movie like 20 times together, not even because we particularly love it, because, but because we have a lot to say about it. <laughs> so he was stoked that maybe, okay, we could finally do that doors podcast. But he was also like, you know, whoa, 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 this is definitely not the time to stop making clothes horse because real shit is finally happening in the world with fashion and shopping and overconsumption. And people are listening and getting involved. I was like, you're right. You're right. I just feel. And he said, hey, I think you need to talk to some of your friends about this, like your slow fashion friends, because I think 
they're going to have some perspectives that help you. And so I did that. I shared the email without revealing the sender's identity and got their thoughts on it, which were very helpful with thinking about my response to it. And I'm going to share some of those today because in this week's episode, we are going to talk about this email and you think it's just an email. There's so much more related to it that we're going to talk about along the way. Trust me, it's a good conversation. Let's get started. Welcome to the first episode of Clothes Horse in 2024, and the first episode recorded in our new home in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Wow, a lot has happened since I last spoke with you all. Let's see. First off, uh, I got COVID, which meant I couldn't make the two additional episodes that I wanted to make in December. Um, I still have some small business audio essays to share with you that were supposed to be a part of that. So I'm going to be sharing them over the next few weeks. Um, So yeah, I had COVID. And then, of course, at the same time, our trailer arrived with to put all of our stuff in, which took a week of loading and is honestly a blur to me because... Uh, for the first half of that, I was still pretty sick with COVID, but somehow still just loading boxes and furniture while sweating profusely and feeling delirious. Um, anyway, then I got over COVID for the most part, and then it was time to, you know, empty out our house completely, clean it up, and move to Pennsylvania, which is a three-day drive. Uh, I was really lucky. My friend Christine uh, flew down from Portland and drove up with me, which was great. We listened to the Priscilla Presley audiobook, Elvis and Me, five stars, highly recommended, great for our drive. We talked about all kinds of other stuff, including this email that we're going to talk about today. And yeah, we drove here in three days. The weather was pretty good. We got here. We spent the first week kind of getting situated, you know, acclimating to Pennsylvania life. And then our stuff arrived last week. Um, Wow. The weather was so great before our stuff arrived, but then when it was time to empty a trailer of all of our possessions, uh, we got 40 mile an hour wind gusts, several snowstorms, rain, uh, 10 degree days. Yeah, it was a pretty wild ride, but we got the, we got the container emptied. There were times where I thought I would cry, but it was too cold to cry. So I just kept unloading. Um, we have a lot of boxes to unpack still. Our house feels very chaotic, but it is getting better. And I'm trying to just be like, it's going to be okay. Right. I'm a, I'm a nester. So disorganization can be a little stressful for me, but we're getting there. And I, I feel really excited about this year and what this move is going to mean for us and seeing more people that we haven't seen in a long time, Um, seeing a lot of you who I've never met IRL. And this is in the extremely early stage of planning. I am hoping to put together a close horse conference here in Lancaster County this summer, uh, most likely just over a weekend. I am... I've never organized anything like this and I'm afraid of it being like the fire festival, but I really want to make it happen because 
I had a long conversation a few weeks ago with my friend Jenny of Late to the Party, who's been a guest here on the podcast in the past. And we talked about how in 20, late 2020 and most of 2021, we were all like really connected from a community perspective. I mean, yes, we were talking constantly on social media. We were also having a lot of regular like Zoom sessions to just catch up and chat and share ideas and just inspire one another and feel close, even though we couldn't physically go see one another. And we also were even for a while there using Clubhouse. Remember that? So we're just like talking a lot. And I don't know, it was really good for all of us. And then 2022 came and we were being forced back into like so-called normal life, even though COVID was still going strong and our lives were very different than they had been before the beginning of the pandemic. And we all kind of just became disconnected, right? And I, I have seen, we've all been kind of struggling with that. I know I have been. I felt very lonely in Austin and that feeling never left. Um, I felt like it, that loneliness made it hard to be inspired creatively or feel motivated. And this year I want, I want community building to be a major focus of what I'm doing and real time relationships and conversations, even if they're not in real life. So in addition to the Close Horse Conference, I'm thinking about a lot of other things, including like monthly Zoom sessions where everyone can kind of show up and we'll talk about a topic, um, answer questions, and just like get to know one another. So I'm toying with a lot of different ideas there. And I would love to hear from all of you for any suggestions you have. But definitely the focus this year is community. So all along, as I was in bed with COVID and as I was packing boxes and unloading boxes and driving and doing all of those things, my intention had been that the first episode of 2024, this episode right now, would be the second half of my series explaining why clothes are kind of garbage right now. That's actually going to be coming next week, just as an FYI. I thought my response to this email, which I like, I was like, you know what? I could write an email about this back. I could respond via email back to the sender, but this is a much bigger conversation. And honestly, like if I'm going to spend all this time breaking it down, I think it's a conversation that we should be all having as a group, right? So I thought like at first, you know, I'm going to respond to this on the podcast because I'm sure other people have had these thoughts or have feelings and would like to respond, right? I thought it might be like 15 minutes, but when the script for this reached the 20 page and six hours of writing mark, I realized this is going to be a standalone situation. In this episode, we will be talking about this email, but really we're going to be talking about larger issues, degrowth, the value of information and art, the impact of small businesses, and so much more. And I can't wait to hear what all of you think about this, your thoughts. So I'll say this again at the end, but I would love to hear from you about this conversation. You can send your thoughts via email. You can record an audio message and then email that to me. But I would love to hear where you all stand with this conversation because it's really complicated, okay? You know, we're devoting an entire episode to an email, right? Which I don't think I've ever done before. 
So let's read it, right? And then we can start talking about it afterwards. And I'm also, like I said, going to be sharing some of the responses to it from people in my life who read it too, because I think they bring perspectives to the table that I wasn't even thinking at the time, which is wild considering how much time I spent thinking about it. But that's, that's why community is so magical, right? Because they help us see new things and learn new things, right? So let's get into this email. Dear Amanda, thank you for your podcast. I've been listening for a while and I really enjoy your perspective on things and all of the information you share about the ills of the fashion industry. I do want to push back a bit though on the idea that small businesses are the future. Maybe it's because when I worked in retail, I mostly worked in small mom and pop shops and they could be just as exploitive as the big box giants. And because it was a quote, small local business, they were able to get away with labor violations, low wages, unethical practices, et cetera, et cetera, with, without much, if any, oversight. Just because you're supporting a small business doesn't mean you're doing a good thing, which is a tough thing to say. As you've mentioned before, a lot of people use the whole there is no ethical consumption under capitalism line to justify not trying at all. And I don't want to do that. But the fact is, if you are a consumer, which we're all forced to be, making the ethical choice isn't as easy as buying a $400 sweater from a small designer or buying a secondhand sweater on Poshmark. It just isn't. Sometimes the ethical choice is not buying or selling anything, not goods, not services, nothing. I understand the point of clothes horse. It's ultimately a podcast about fashion, but it rubs me the wrong way that a lot of the people you interview are vintage resellers or someone else who's trying to sell me something. I'm not anti-vintage reseller, but well, not everyone needs to be a girl boss who's selling her goodwill finds on Instagram. Not everyone needs to own a small business selling yarn or art or styling services, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that promoting the idea that small business is the future just promotes more consumerism. It feels like greenwashing. Maybe the future isn't small businesses, but less businesses and more people teaching algebra or being social workers or librarians or whatever. I admit my bias and TBH privilege as a person who works in a completely non-selling stuff-based field. Obviously, it's your podcast and I'm still going to listen because I really do enjoy it, but I wish there were a lot less people trying to sell me stuff and more people, well, not trying to sell me stuff, you know? Okay, so where should we start with this? Because there's a lot to unpack here. Now, I'm going to tell you, like I said, initially my response to this was like raw emotion. One, the implication that I am engaging in greenwashing is like devastating (laughs) to think that I would be spending the amount of time I spend each week working on Clothes Horse for free and be accidentally greenwashing and encouraging overconsumption. Like you have no idea how how terrible that makes me feel, that implication. And that's definitely like where I was like, okay, I think it's time to just wrap up Close Horse and move on and start that podcast about the Doors film. I also saw that there were a lot of things here that are worthy of discussion that we we all need to be thinking about, right? Some of my friends who saw this email saw the use of girl boss as a bit of a microaggression because I have spoken so often of how traumatic my time working at girl boss world headquarters, AKA nasty gal was. I'm going to say, I need you all to get past that because I believe that the sender, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here. They may not have heard those episodes or maybe they were trying to underscore just how concerning my use of the phrase small business is the future is, 
by using a phrase that would certainly elicit an emotional response from me. So one thing that I was thinking as I was on this journey of thinking about this email was, is, is the term or the phrase, I guess, the slogan, if you will, small business is the future as damaging and I don't know, problematic as the term girl boss, right? These were, this was one of the many things I was considering. I really think where we begin with responding to this email is not thinking about the word girl boss or even the greenwashing element of this conversation, but it is by unpacking my approach to having conversations about fast fashion and overconsumption and how that plays out via close horse. Because ultimately, I am Amanda Lee McCarty and I am close horse. I am the person who is creating all of this, right? I'm controlling the narrative here and picking out the guests and everything else. And I want to be clear that it is all very, very thoughtful. I'm basically a professional overthinker. I'm out there overthinking every single thing I do, and nothing gets overthought more than what happens here on Close Horse. So the way I talk about consumption and small businesses and everything else is something that I have actually outlined quite a bit for myself uh, as part of the process of making Close Horse over the past few years and kind of evolving the messaging, right? To get started with where my perspective comes into play here, what my perspective is, we have to travel back in time together to my very early 20s. Or, okay, actually, let's travel back even further to when I was a little kid with cancer. I promise this fits into the whole thing. When I was about two years old, I was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. It's a fairly rare cancer that primarily affects children. Now, the survival rate is pretty decent. I even, it's the strangest thing. One of my best friends from growing up, her name is Shannon. About 10 years ago, her daughter was diagnosed with rhabdo and her, she reached out to me and said like, Hey, you know, I remember you had cancer when I, you were a kid, when you were about my daughter's age, like, what was it like for you? And then I found out she had the same kind that I had. And I mean, she survived. She's like a thriving middle school student now. And I get so excited every time I see a picture of her on social media, just like she did it. She made it. Like I said, now the survival rate is pretty decent. But back when I was diagnosed, the prognosis wasn't great. I was treated at the Milton S. Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yes, where the chocolate is made, which had its own incredible children's hospital and still does. In fact, I think that's maybe where my friend's daughter was treated too. That place became my second home for years as doctors tried different treatments, including chemotherapy and radiation in a time when, to be really honest, doctors were still trying to figure out how to treat cancer well, you know? So I had a lot of weird experimental treatments. I have a massive scar on my head from a port and chemo combo that went very badly and actually chemically burned away tissue, including part of my skull. And then needed, you know, another procedure to fix it. Um, that's why I usually wear a hat to ensure that my hair keeps it covered. I have a smaller but similar scar on my foot from the same kind of treatment failure. It seemed like I always had a raging fever, uncontrollable vomiting. It was scary as shit, but I also have, this is so weird how memories work for us. 
I also have very fond memories of the nursing staff who showered me with care and affection. My grandma has always loved to tell stories about how I could really work a crowd, even as a kid, you know, when everyone would arrive at the hospital to visit me, they knew I wouldn't be in my room, but rather at the nurse's station, like telling jokes or getting my nails painted. And I do just remember hanging out there all the time. Back then, uh, the hospital had these weird, they look so 70s now. They must have been from like the 60s or 70s. I'm sure they don't have them now. These sort of like beds that you could push around that were like tiny wood. They almost look like a cradle on wheels, but children fit in them. And so you could like just get wheeled over to the nurse's station and kind of be laying down, but a little propped up under a blanket while hanging out. And like... (sighs) I love that. I loved hanging out with the nurses. I loved hanging out with adults. I was that kind of kid. The thing is, for all of the good memories I have that of that time, other kids died regularly on that ward where I lived, including kids who had the same kind of cancer as me. And somehow I survived. My family would always remind me of how lucky I was to be here when so many others were not. And to be honest, that's still something that I carry with me. I think I think we're all lucky to be here living on this magical planet filled with amazing creatures and plants and natural phenomena. But I don't let myself forget that luck, that privilege of life, and it motivates me to try my hardest to be kind, thoughtful, and compassionate. I haven't always gotten it right, but I sure do try. So that's that's my childhood as a cancer kid. Let's move forward in time to my early 20s. I ended up living in Chicago with my boyfriend, Brad, who had been awarded a fellowship in neuroscience at Northwestern. He was working on a PhD, which he would receive years after we broke up. At that point, he was still pretty early in his fellowship, and I was really thinking a lot about animal rights. I mean, I still do, of course, but back then it was really top of mind for me. I had just begun what would be, I hope, and still is, a life of volunteer work in the world of animal rescue. I was volunteering every weekend at the vet clinic at the Anti-Cruelty Society. And I'm going to tell you, I was really struggling with just how horrible people were to animals and seeing the repercussions of this abuse of animals. It was really, really hard. At the same time, Brad had begun working in a lab that did animal testing, and it really fucked with me. It seemed it seemed so wrong that someone kind and thoughtful like him could also be hurting animals every day at work. It was really, really hard for me to reconcile, especially after yet another Saturday shift at the Anti-Cruelty Society. It was real. There was a lot of secret crying at that point for me. I stewed about this disconnect for quite a while. In fact, I'm using the term stew because Brad always called me old stewie because I just silently spiraled about things for weeks and months. And I always wanted to, and I, I still do this, really think things through before I responded because I grew up in the kind of environment where no one thought about the weight and impact of their actions and words, especially my mom. And I still struggle with the pain that a lot of that caused. 
I've always said I want to be better than that, right? If I'm lucky to be here, to still be alive, I want to do better than what I've been around, you know? So yeah, old Stewie here just stewing away about this email, about animal rights, lots of other stuff too. I thought about it for months, like I said, and it finally just exploded into a big fight or rather it worked its way into a bigger fight about something else. It's weird. Like I don't really get into fights with people because I think these things through and I can count the times on one hand that Dustin and I have had anything even close to a fight. But in my early 20s, I could still get into an argument with a romantic partner big time. (laughs) In this conversation, in this fight, in this argument, whatever you want to call it, I just couldn't believe that he was okay with animal suffering every day in the name of science. Like who cares when we're talking about living things? And he said to me, Amanda, you wouldn't be alive if it weren't for animal testing. That's where cancer treatments start. And I, I mean, what could I say to that? I just froze for a few moments. I mean, I've never been shut down. I've never been owned so hard in an argument like I was at that moment. I just grabbed my coat and I went out for a walk. I walked It was such a long walk all along the lake, past neighborhood after neighborhood until I was near the skyscrapers and the tourist attractions. I was like, how am I so far away from our apartment? The whole time I was just, I was just thinking. It's like I didn't even see all the streets I was passing because I was just trying to figure it all out. How could we both be right? That was what I couldn't figure out because I knew hurting animals was wrong, but I also knew that you know, medical testing saves people's lives. It saved mine. It was so overwhelming to me because it seemed like there should be a clear right and wrong. But there wasn't, right? Now, a person who is a lot more absolutist about these kinds of things would be like, no, there should not be animal testing and people like you should have died, Amanda, because the the science wouldn't exist, right? Let me tell you, that's a tough pill to swallow, okay? And so, like, yeah, I can see that. But when you're actually the person who would not be alive, this becomes a lot more complicated to think about, right? I'm still not cool with animal testing, especially in the area of cosmetics, detergents, and skincare where... We already know what is and is not harmful to humans. Like, let's just stop there and we don't need to create new perfumes and mascaras and whatnot. Like, we're fine. It just really drives overconsumption anyway and a lot of plastic waste. But I also recognize that medical breakthroughs, cures, people being alive like me right now, they begin with medical testing. Those treatments are being tested on animals. I mean, I'll tell you, I mentioned this at some point in a previous episode. When I was a teenager, my mother was diagnosed with HIV. And back then, like, if you got HIV, you died. You died in a year at most, maybe two years. And it was horrible, right? There was no real treatment for it. I'm going to tell you, thanks to a lot of medical research and certainly a lot of medical testing on animals, I may be no contact with my mother, but she is still alive, Okay, 25, 30 years later. And so were so many other people, right? And so that's where it's like, where 
where's the right and where's the wrong, right? This was my first real experience with nuance, with complication, with gray areas. Everything had always felt so black and white to me, so right and so wrong for a long time. There could only be bad people or good people, heroes or villains, good or evil. As I've moved through life, the nuance has become more and more visible to me. I mean, yeah, some things are resolutely bad, evil, and wrong, and nothing about that will change. You know, murder, torture, genocide, slavery, sexual assault, physical, mental, and sexual abuse, and bigotry, and hatred. Those are just the beginning of a long list of things that are 100% inarguably bad. There's no nuance needed. This is very clear. But when we get to larger scale social and economic issues or issues that are embedded within these larger social and economic issues, well, there's a lot of nuance there that makes them a lot more complicated conversation, especially when we consider how we talk about them with others and how we get others involved. I'll be the first to say I am so ready for the end of capitalism and I am so ready for a world in which we are caring for one another as a big community. I've had so many shitty jobs over the years that kept me desperate and scared. I'm ready to raise children with my neighbors and swap our skills and food and maybe live on a big commune with my chosen family. That's the world I want. But guess what? Although I'm hoping to get most of my friends out here to Lancaster County where we can take care of one another, I don't see the end of capitalism within my lifetime or even my daughter Dylan's lifetime. It's a hard pill to swallow, right? When you just hate, when you hate the pain and suffering that capitalism creates, right? It's really hard to say that's not going away anytime soon, but there are things we can do. We can fight for what is right. We can act with care and compassion, and we can try to make the best choices, right? Because we aren't getting that utopia anytime soon. And I think too many people are sort of saying, well, if I can't have that perfect world, then I'm not changing anything right now. I'll keep shopping from Shein and ordering dumb plastic shit from Timu because YOLO. It's using there's no ethical consumption under capitalism as an excuse to opt out of making any changes, doing anything that is going to be a lot of work or feels kind of uncomfortable. My friend Selena read this email and she said, we all wish we could live in a utopian world, but that isn't reality. If this person feels like they are being bombarded by feeling like everyone is trying to sell them something, one piece of advice get off your phone. Because as we all know, if you have a business, and I suspect this person's algorithm is full of artists like us, there will always be advertising, even when you don't think there is. As much as I dislike having to set aside time to make a reel to try and promote my next pattern for sale or my next drop, it is vital to my survival as a business owner. And I will say, Selena is right, right? Like we have to live within capitalism because that's the reality of our lives. And for those people who are trying to make a living within capitalism, which is like, spoiler alert, all of us in different ways, we all have to play the game, right? Sometimes it is that you are advertising on Instagram or creating content so people know your business or selling things so you can pay your rent, 
For other people, it's picking up a side hustle because they don't get paid at their full-time job. For some people, it's having to put up with bullshit company policies that they do not believe in in order to hold on to their job. For some people, it is sacrificing aspects of their personal life in favor of their job so that they can, you know, keep paying their rent. People who stay at jobs just so they can have health insurance, even though they hate them or hate what the company is doing. People who work for nonprofits that are highly abusive, but once again, don't have any other option. I mean, there's so many of us who get trapped in jobs because we don't know how else we're going to survive, right? Many of us are trying to play within the system the best that we can. And often that means doing things that we don't love. Selena is 100% right that if you are feeling like you're being sold to all the time, the first thing you can do is put the phone away because I, man, Instagram, my feed currently, I cannot figure out how to make it interesting to me. Um, I would really love to see us all just like posting our lives again and talking about things that matter to us because mostly I just see ads right now. That's an Instagram issue. TikTok is pretty similar. I was explaining to Dustin that the algorithm on TikTok as I see it is you get one video from someone you follow. The next one is an ad. The next one is someone you don't know who's selling something through TikTok shop like I keep getting videos for these horrible like jeggings that like snatch you or whatever. That'll be there. Then another ad. And then maybe I'll see another video that interests me. Uh, I see a lot of ads on Reddit now. I mean, forget about Facebook, right? Forget about reading a news article on your phone. Uh, Apple News itself is filled with paid content. I mean, like take a break from your phone and it will help a lot. Um. But it's, it's hard, right? I feel that too. I feel that sickness that people are selling stuff to me everywhere I go. Where it doesn't make me angry is when I know it's small business owners in our community who are just trying to take care of their families and themselves, right? Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. 
Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a -a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. The fight against fast fashion and overconsumption requires a lot of nuance and reflection. In the early days of Clothes Horse, I was internally full of rage against this industry that I knew was exploiting humans, destroying our planet, and ripping off so many people. This industry that people romanticized when it was actually so ugly and harmful. Like, I couldn't even bear people talking about something they bought or showing off their new outfit or in any way standing some kind of brand out there. I just was like, you make me sick. I mean, I didn't say that out loud, but the internal rage was just growing, right? I wanted to be like, stop following influencers, stop buying shit, stop getting things from Amazon, stop sharing links for stuff to buy. There were moments where I was like, should I just like move off the grid and become a nudist so I don't have to think about these things ever again? Because it was like, that's how hard it was for me to balance what I knew with what the world really was. I still feel a lot of these feelings, but over the years, I have grown in terms of how I talk about it with others. I will say that in 2020 and 2021, there was a big difference in terms of how people were talking about fast fashion, sustainability, slow fashion, you name it, on social versus how they are now. And the language back then was very shamey, very blamey, where very like, what's your problem? Why do you buy stuff from Shein? It has evolved over time. I think a lot of the people who were speaking with that tone, right? Using that kind of language. I think one, they were feeling the same sort of rage and frustration that I was, but I think that they were also not yet having moments to having that time that it takes to reflect on all the nuance within clothing itself, right? The issues of access and affordability and sizing and so much more. I think it was just early in those in the stage of this larger conversation and everybody was just beginning to explore it. I see such a shift now. What I have realized is if I don't meet people where they are, if I don't take shame and blame out of the conversation, they're not going to get involved and they're going to shut off to everything we're trying to change. Productive activism means community building and meeting people where they are and really understanding the nuance and also understanding the reality of the world we live in right now, you know, and working within that to change what it is. So many of us, including myself in those early days of close horse, were operating from this world of which we were going to just completely destroy capitalism in just a couple years. And we would be living in this totally different world afterwards. In 2020, it felt like we may be on the verge of this massive change in what society is. It did feel totally possible that the pandemic was going to totally subvert our reality. Um, so in the early days, it felt like we could really dismantle capitalism in a couple of years and have this much better utopian life. But that changed, right? 
I think we did ourselves a disservice by not moving on from that fast enough and recognizing how we could bring people together in a grassroots movement to change what it is to be a consumer, to be a member of this society, and get a really early start in fighting for legislation and also educating those around us and changing our consumption habits, right? And so in the midst of many of us fighting to totally overturn the fashion industry as it was and kind of capitalism as a whole, we saw at the same time Shein in 2020 has its like record sales year, grows exponentially, picks up even more momentum in 2021, 2022 continues to grow. Timu comes on the scene. So many other drop shippers, TikTok shop, all of the stuff that is like straight up gross, bad for the planet, bad for people, fast fashion. We saw all of this just growing and growing and growing, maybe because we were losing or had missed at least our chance to start those conversations earlier and to really connect with people. It's a different time now, right? And I think what we are all realizing is that skipping fast fashion is hard because we've grown up in a culture of shopping that makes it really hard to change. Fast fashion brands have their sustainable collections and there's the greenwashy sustainable brands who are successful because they sell us the idea that we don't need to change anything to save the planet. They sell the illusion that we can shop our way to a better world and it's confusing But the spoiler is we can't shop our way to a better world, okay? And there's no miracle fabric or collection out there that lets us to continue to shop the same way we have been for the past 15 years without repercussion, right? And if you've been listening to Close Horse long enough, you know all of that. Well, guess what? We're still in a very small minority of people who know that, but I do think that more and more people are learning that. Like, I think 2024 is going to be a great year. Once again, this is why community is such a focus for me this year. This is going to be a year where we're going to reach more people and we're going to explain these things that we take for granted, right? That you can't shop your way to a better world, that we can't keep shopping the way we have, right? We're actually at this really pivotal moment right now where, and this is just how social media trends and social trends as a whole kind of begin and can have longer lasting influence. And that's that all of a sudden, all at once, it feels like in the past month or so, many different people on different platforms with different backgrounds, with different aesthetics, with different levels of knowledge about the fashion industry and slow fashion as a whole are having conversations all at once about how you know clothes are kind of garbage these days and they don't fit well and they don't last. And suddenly there is this larger awareness that maybe there's a problem with the industry making our clothes and how they're sold to us and so much more. This is the moment where we can talk to people who have never set foot in our slow fashion bubble before. This is the moment where we get to talk to them and get them on board and pick up the momentum we need for these larger world changing, well, changes. And it's going to be really important to think about how we approach these conversations and how we allow for everyone's humanity as we hold these conversations. The other thing that we, we know now, and that 
we want more people to know is that changing the course of our world will mean making a lot of individual changes as a society. You know, I always say one person can't change the world alone, but when we're all working together and doing the same things, we do have a major impact. It's a numbers game. It really is. We're not going to get people involved in this movement if we build a slow fashion paradigm that doesn't account for the humanity of the people involved, including ourselves. The very basic fact is that we all need to buy less stuff. In fact, we all need to buy a lot less stuff, period. And we need to make that change immediately, right? Many of us are, but like I said, we got to reach a lot more people. Magical fabric or only shopping secondhand or upcycled or only renting your clothes or, you know, we've been filled with these, as humans, we tend to, it goes back to this idea of like black and white thinking without the nuance. We want an easy solution. We want to hear that there's a magical fabric or that if we only shop secondhand or we only shop upcycled or we only rent our clothes or we build an easy capsule wardrobe, we want to believe that then everything will be fixed. But we know that none of these things allow us to consume stuff at the same rate we have been without facing some serious consequences. That major change is going to be a major change for us on an individual level and us as a society. We must buy less stuff immediately. But if we expect people to stop buying stuff altogether, oh my God, that feels like such diet culture to me. If we expect people to stop buying stuff, buy zero things, never again buy anything, we are setting people up for disconnecting from this movement really fast. Because the moment they buy something new, the guilt will make them walk away from us, okay? Shopping, new clothes, fast fashion, they are woven into our culture and social behavior at this point. How many movies have you seen with a shopping montage, right? We've been swimming in this sea of shopping and overconsumption and new stuff since birth. We've been told our entire lives that new stuff and more stuff equals happiness. The fast everything model of retail has convinced us that owning more stuff is always the best option. We're exposed to advertising everywhere, social media, streaming platforms, billboards, haul videos, Bathroom ads, so many bathroom ads lately. I mean, they're just everywhere. There are whole news articles that I get halfway through and I realize it's sponsored content, okay? Social media continues to reinforce that idea that we need to wear something new for every event. The influencer industrial complex is going strong. Outfit of the days, still going strong. People selling stuff in their TikTok shops, still going strong. Magazines and blogs reinforce that idea that new clothes, makeup, etc., will fix our problems and lead to happiness, right? It's a plot of many movies and television shows. We, you and me, and the people around us in our community, we can call bullshit on all of these ideas, but we also have to recognize some other truths that make this a lot more complicated than just telling people, don't buy anything ever again. That's the most ethical option. And yeah, on paper, it sure is, right? But 
As I always like to tell people, on paper, capitalism is a great idea too. Why? Because the tenet of capitalism that doesn't account for the humanity of it all is that people, businesses, they will compete with one another to provide the best products and services for their customers and therefore customers always win out. But when the idea of capitalism was created and rolled out, everyone forgot about like what humans are really like, that there are plenty of humans that are greedy, that are afraid, that are selfish, that just aren't great about thinking about the big picture and that ultimately accumulating wealth became the real goal of capitalism, uh, really prioritizing the benefit of businesses over customers, right? One of the other basic tenets of capitalism was not only would customers benefit from the competition of capitalism, so would workers because companies would compete to keep the best workers by providing great benefits and wages and working conditions. And we know that didn't work out either, right? Humans fucked it up, okay? And so when we tell people on paper, hey, the best thing we can all do is never buy anything again and maybe get into like a bartering society and all quit our jobs and corporations go away, we have to recognize that like humans, they're not going to stop shopping 100%, okay? People are always going to need to buy stuff. I mean, ask me, I'm a person who buying anything is like something I have to think about for like three months, right? It's like such a big deal to me. Ask me about the stupidly boring shit I have had to buy since moving. For example, a compost can, because in Austin, it was supplied by the city, but here we have to get it on our own. Fortunately, I knew I needed to buy a compost can. I'm sure I could have ordered something on Amazon or gone to Walmart or something. You know what I did? I bought it from the local hardware store here that's like a couple miles away from our house, right? I was like, that is the least negative impact and the most community impact I could make when buying a compost can. We also had to buy things like a recycling bin and shelving for our closets. I needed a filing cabinet. Fortunately, I found one secondhand on Facebook Marketplace. Like I'm thinking about how I can mitigate the negative impact of, of what I buy. Obviously nothing is impactless. Even that secondhand filing cabinet, we had to drive to go get it, right? How can I mitigate the negative impact and maximize any positive impact by buying it locally and from small businesses? These are the things I think about. And this is why I talk about small business an awful lot, among many other reasons. The other thing, if we're just going to talk about clothes, people will always need to buy clothes. Hopefully they'll be secondhand or, you know, upcycled or somehow repaired and repurposed, but people need clothes, right? Here's the thing. Our bodies change sizes. Our life circumstances change. The climate we live in changes. All of these changes require clothes that we don't already own. Yes, Every once in a while, people show up in the comments section to talk about how they're wearing the same clothes since high school. And I say, congratulations to them. But my body has changed about 50 times since then. My career, my life, where I've lived, everything else, change, 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 change. Yeah, I'm not wearing the same clothes I've worn since high school. In fact, I probably sold most of them to pay for books in college. Like life is more complicated than like you buy clothes and you set it and forget it. People are going to buy clothes. 
But beyond that, even people will always buy stuff that they don't necessarily need, but they want from gifts to craft supplies to tchotchkes. People are going to celebrate holidays, get married, do crossword puzzle books, do needlepoint sets, have kids, adopt pets, travel, host dinners, go to parties, go camping, get hobbies, read books, listen to music, play music. I could go on and on. These are the things that bring joy. And life is so short. Seriously, even on my worst days, I remind myself of how impermanent this all is. And I remind myself constantly and I implore all of you We should do things that make us happy. We should have memorable experiences and spend time with people we love. We should make cool shit, right? Because we are humans and we only get this one life. And I will tell you, the meaning of your life is the people around you and who you've loved and what you've done and the memories you've built and the happiness that you've had, the things you've learned along the way and the impact you have had on the world when you leave. All of this living of life will sometimes involve the buying and selling of stuff. Yes, we all need to buy a lot less of that stuff and think it through a whole lot more before we buy it. We need to shop secondhand when we can. And if we can't find it secondhand, we need to buy it from a small business when we can, right? One of the many, I mean, you all know, I'm a Reddit creep. I am on, I follow so many subreddits. I, Reddit really helps me think a lot of things through and get new perspectives and also sometimes just waste time that I shouldn't be wasting. There's one of the many subreddits I follow is called anti-consumption. There's a lot of great conversation about Stanley tumblers and Squishmallows hoarding, which warm my heart because I'm like, oh, like-minded people, right? Yes. But there are also people who show up to say that no one should have pets or kids because they lead to overconsumption, as if pets and kids don't bring joy and comfort to us, which they do. And studies have shown having pets actually extends your life and the quality of your life. We can enjoy kids and pets. We can go see our families and have a nice time. We can spend quality time with our friends. We can do all of that without a ton of dumb shopping. We just need to think about it more, right? And we need to get that message out there so people understand it. That said, people are going to buy stuff, right? We have to accept that. The moment we take that off the table and tell people they better never buy anything again or get rid of their cat or not have kids or whatever it is that they're dreaming of, we alienate them from this movement. It's important to have the nuance and it's important to meet people where they are. My friend Christine, who, like I said, drove all the way from Austin to Pennsylvania with me, three-day drive, many hours in the car. She unfortunately had to hear about this email for days as we drove from Austin to Pennsylvania. And she said, we have turned to small businesses to create a space for us to fit into in a world that unfortunately does revolve around capitalism and consumerism. Most of us are struggling with everyday decisions like, do I buy the cheapest milk from a big box store that is anti-union and treats employees like a commodity? Or do I try to wait until I can go to a farmer's market to buy directly from a farm? Or do I buy bulk nuts to make my own milk? Or do I buy coconut milk that contributes to deforestation in the Amazon? Either way, you're still buying goods and shopping. 
Those I know in nonprofit and teaching will still have to buy gas, groceries, office supplies, etc. Even if you are mostly self-sufficient, you have to buy things. Heck, even the Amish buy supplies. I've seen it. And it's a true story she has. I showed her. That's just the world we live in. Hence, where the phrase no ethical consumption under capitalism comes from. It's not just a cop-out for those buying Shein hauls. It's a real concept that has merit as it encompasses the very thoughts in this email. I mean, this person's email wasn't typed on a found typewriter with a hand with handmade paper and mailed via carrier pigeon. It was likely written on a computer bought from a big box store that has bad glass door reviews and was likely made in a factory abroad that barely paid a living wage to the factory workers. Touche, Christine. When I say that I want people to shop small, I'm not telling them to keep over-consuming, but I'm telling them to shop only from small businesses or as often as possible. I'm not saying that over-shopping isn't over-shopping if you shop small. That couldn't be further from the values I try to share here on the podcast and on social media. Is it greenwashing to say small business is the future? I don't think so unless you or me, I guess, in this situation are also implying, as many fast fashion brands do, that shopping small sort of cancels out the impact of shopping. I actually think that small business and buying less stuff are part of the same construct that is slow fashion. Here is a great quote from Kate S., one of two Kates who will be quoted in this episode, hence the initial, I totally feel like we're in elementary school. Kate S. read this email and shared her thoughts with me, and she said this, I don't disagree that the future may be fewer businesses, but this isn't exactly straightforward arithmetic. More small businesses and one less Amazon sounds like the math isn't mathing, but it is. The impact of that outcome for the planet and its people would be huge. While I am as anti-capitalism as the next clothes horse lover, I have to respect that people need to earn a living to support themselves and care for their families. We haven't course corrected to avoid that reality yet. If folks want to run a small business with awesome ethics and values, I think that is, as we sit here today, one of the best ways to provide for themselves and serve the planet. It's like you always say, progress, not perfection. And I see more small businesses in the future as a huge part of that progress. Kate makes a really great point here and I'm so grateful for it. And that's the idea of the math sounding like it doesn't math, but actually mathing pretty hard. We cannot underscore the sheer size and sales volume that a company like Amazon is doing. More than $550 billion in revenue in 2023 alone. And we know that a lot of the stuff Amazon is selling is stuff that people don't need, stuff that won't last long, stuff that will break, stuff that will end up in the landfill really, really soon. But beyond that, Amazon also provides a lot of data storage services via Amazon Web Services for other big businesses. (laughs) Imagine if we cut that $550 billion in volume in half to $225 billion, and we said, okay, all that revenue is going to be redistributed to small businesses with a million dollars in revenue each year, which is, by the way, still way bigger than most of the businesses within the slow fashion community. But I thought, let's make it easy from a math perspective. Let's say a million dollars. Right there, we would have 225,000 small businesses with multiple employees providing goods and services, including the data stuff that Amazon offers. One big business goes away, consumption from that business is cut in half, and yet still 
we can have 225,000 small businesses replacing it. That, that is a huge shift, okay, for the planet. And that's, we're just talking about one company right here. This would not only be a shift for the planet, as I just said, it would also be a huge shift for people as a whole, okay? And what we can and cannot or do or do not buy and how much people are paid and where they work and even their quality of life. That's just Amazon. Target did about $100 billion in sales in 2023. What if we cut it in half and replace that with small businesses? Walmart, $600 billion in sales. Whoa. Think of how many businesses we could turn that into and still buy half as much stuff in general, right? Dollar General, $38 billion. There's another one. Cut it, right? Family Dollar, $28 billion. These are just four companies, five if we add Amazon, slash their sales and have to account for all of us buying a lot less stuff, redistribute those sales into smaller businesses, slash their sales in half to account for all of us, everyone, buying a lot less stuff, redistribute those sales into smaller businesses, and the landscape looks a lot different. We're saying, okay, we're going to get rid of these, what, five humongous businesses. Suddenly we have about 750,000 to a million small businesses replacing them, even with our consumption cut in half. It's a big shift. It's a big shift. And remember, that's how it once was. I know that I'm older than some of you, younger than others, but when I grew up in a small town of rural Pennsylvania, we would drive into York where my grandma lived to do our shopping. There were no stores out where we lived. And we barely had any big chains back then. We had Sears, McCrory's, RIP, loved McCrory's. They had tacos at their lunch counter, uh, JCPenney, and we had Kmart. Even the mall stores were small chains at that point. The grocery stores were either local chains with just like a handful of stores or completely local one-offs. Same thing with the hardware stores and the pharmacies. We had local department stores like Mailman's and Hess. We did have a McDonald's and the other fast food chains, but most restaurants were also locally owned. And shopping felt more personal because inevitably my grandma, who also can work a crowd, or maybe my aunt work a crowd less effectively than my grandma, but still had a little bit of the magic. Inevitably, one of them would know the owner of the business. So they weren't going to sell us crappy stuff that would break because we would be back to complain, right? And a relationship could be broken by providing bad product or bad service or giving us food poisoning or not allowing a return. That changed a lot in the 90s when Walmart and later Target arrived in town. Soon we had Michaels and TJ Maxx, Kohl's, and every other big box store that you can find in every small city and big town across the U.S. And suddenly, no one in my family knew the owners of those businesses, right? And they were just selling us the same crap that they were selling to everyone else. And it didn't matter if we were unhappy with the product because what, were we going to call up the CEO? Was he going to care? No. If you've ever wondered why every small town and city now has the same series of stores in every shopping center, sometimes they're actually clustered together in the exact same order. It's something I've noticed as I've driven across this country. Well, you have to look no further than the fundamental issue affecting every industry and our economy, which is that need to have increased sales and profits year after year after year theoretically into infinity. 
Well, how do you get there? How do you just keep growing for a very long period of time? Well, you open more and more stores and Target has close to 2000 stores. Michael's has almost 1300. Walmart has more than 10,500. The thing is, Opening that many stores requires more than just finding the location and filling it with inventory to be successful. You have to eliminate local competition. And in the 80s and 90s, and even the aughts, as these chains grew and grew, they gobbled up smaller chains and eliminated local small businesses and soon became the only place in town to buy craft supplies and towels and sometimes even groceries. For many people in the United States, Walmart is the only place to buy groceries. These companies did this by undercutting every small business in town on price, which feels really unfair because in many cases they were able to offer that pricing by reducing quality and leveraging an exploitative supply chain. And when these stores became the only option in town or anywhere around, they got to control pricing and quality and offering. That's not a great situation for customers, along with wages and working conditions, bad for workers. When Walmart first opened in York, when I was in middle school, they paid better than any other retailer in town and a lot of other jobs. People left their jobs to go work at Walmart because it was such, such an upgrade. Now, of course, you might laugh hearing that because Walmart underpays and underschedules making it impossible to make a living from a full-time job there. And they are notorious for the sheer volume of store employees that require government financial assistance because they are so underpaid by Walmart. When you really think about it, when we talk about small business being the future, it was also the past. It was a past that was pre-fast fashion and pre the level of overconsumption that we live with now. I rarely look back to the past and say, wow, things sure were better back then. <laughs> like pretty much never. But this is one situation in which a more locally based economy, much more small business, a lot less big business, and even a less global supply chain actually was better for the planet, the customers, and the workers. The reality is that the rise of these big businesses has destroyed small businesses. And they've also, along the way, suppressed wages, controlled our access to products, made it harder for us to repair products, and even changed the quality of the things we're being sold. Why? Because all of those big companies operate under the same model, infinite growth year after year after year. It's not about just supporting your family and, you know, a few employees. It's about world domination, essentially. Well, once you have maximized the amount of stuff you can sell to people as one of these big companies, you have to start thinking of new ways to grow profitability without selling even more stuff. And you get there by cutting costs of the stuff you sell, meaning making lower quality goods, selling them at the same price, and cutting wages and employees, right? You make it a harder place to work. You build even more planned obsolescence into your model 
so people can't repair stuff and have to buy replacements more often. That's how you keep these big businesses growing year after year. Now, if you've been listening to Close Horse long enough or live in this world, you know that a lot of big corporations are horrible for workers and consumers alike. But what about small businesses? Like what's their impact, right? You know, I've been making clothes horse for about three and a half years now, and I have posted on social media almost every single day since then. Certain topics I post about, I can already predict what one of the comments will be. You know, it'll be like, oh, well, you should just sew all your own clothes. Or if I post something about like the Uyghur Muslims, people would say, that's why we should make everything in the United States where it'll be made ethically. And it's like, oh, that's not true either. You know, I post about fast fashion, like the ethics of it. And someone is like, you're being classist, right? Like I can predict those comments are going to show up, right? It's kind of like Groundhog Day (laughs) every single time. One of the topics I post about regularly, which you all know, is why I believe we should shop small when we need to buy something, often using the statement, small business is the future. It's It's a catchy slogan, right? Now, obviously... That's a much simpler version of a more nuanced take, but because I am the captain of nuance capturing on social media, I also share why I think it is important to shop small. And I'm going to go into that again in a few. Anyway, every time I post about small business, someone shows up in the comments to say, not all small businesses are great. I worked for a small business that was terrible. Guess what? I know that. In fact, I don't think every small business is owned by a great person who just wants to do the best things for the planet, the people, and their community. In fact, there are a lot of small businesses of many different types owned by crappy people all over this world. I've worked for some of them. There was the restaurant where the owner would grope me every time I walked through the kitchen to get dinner rolls for a table. That was fun because... There were a lot of dinner rolls happening at that restaurant. There was the vintage store owner who would scream at us and hold our paychecks just because he was mad at us. There was the medical billing office I worked in one summer in college where we were not allowed to eat or drink at our desks, but we were also only allowed to get up to grab water twice a day. And I seriously had a UTI like all summer long while I was making like $1 more than minimum wage to do data entry of medical billing. It was great. These businesses sucked. And I'm going to tell you something that I have learned the very hard way time and time again throughout my life. There are bad people in just about every line of work. Now, I'm not saying that they're like monsters or they're evil, but maybe they're not thinking of others, right? Or their impact or treating people well, or maybe they're mean jerks. They're not great, right? I've had so many experiences with them in a wide variety of professions, and I'm sure if you sit down and think about it, you have to. Like, okay, for example, there was the OBGYN I saw one time right after my partner died when I was like, you know, seven months pregnant, who shamed me for being unmarried and not making better decisions. Never saw her again. Uh, Then there was the ultrasound technician who asked me where, just where was my child's father in a very accusing way? And I said, He died a few weeks ago, and that was awkward. 
when in doubt, make it awkward. Seriously. (laughs) There was a teacher at my high school who took nude photos of classmates. I still know tons of great teachers. I know tons of great ultrasound technicians. I know great doctors who are great people. There was the flight attendant who said if I wanted to sit next to a two-year-old Dylan, I would have to walk through the plane and ask each passenger if they would consider trading seats with me. That was really cool, right? When the airline messed up by not booking us together, even though I bought the tickets together, that was great. Uh, Meanwhile, I know some really awesome people who are flight attendants as well right? Shout out to my friend, Amber, who's worked for Southwest forever and is one of the best people I've ever met. There was the Walmart cashier who asked me with disdain, just how old were you when you had your kid? That was cool. I made that one awkward too. I was like, I'm 25. And she was like, oh, you just look young. Um, know plenty of great people who work as cashiers or work in retail and do customer service. Um, I could tell stories all day about crappy people I have encountered in various fields and job roles around this world. The thing is, I still see doctors. I still get medical tests done. I still believe that teachers have one of the hardest jobs out there and I want to do everything I can to support them. Uh, I still think flight attendants have maybe one of the top five hardest jobs out there and I also want to support them. Um, And I think all the people who work retail deserve a better quality of life. The point is, you can't have one bad experience or two or even three and assume that all those people or that whole industry or all that whole type of thing is bad. You know, that's where like all the bad isms come from. To be honest, we can't, we can't think that way. We, we have to think about the nuance, the big picture, the humanity of it all. Yeah. Some people suck. There are bad bosses and bad communicators in businesses of all sizes. There are people who are selfish. There are people who are greedy. Plenty of people should not be running a business in the first place. I still believe that most people are great. And the moment that I hear a small business is bad, I'm sure to tell my friends and family immediately. I leave a bad review on Google and Yelp. I love doing that. That's what we should all be doing. If it's in your city, you could talk about it on your city's subreddit, you know. We shouldn't support bad businesses, no matter the size. Remember, the motto of Clothes Horse has always been, don't give your money to assholes. And like I said, that applies to businesses of all sizes and types. And I want to be clear that any guest who owns a small business that appears on this podcast is vetted and vetted hard. Any small brand I post about on Instagram, also vetted. Anyone who advertises, yep, vetted for asshole behavior. Hell, I earlier last year pulled a person out of a small business roundup on Instagram after they posted a fat phobic comment on a CNN article and I happened to see it, okay? I take this shit very seriously. Maria, when she read the email, she said, I have also worked for small businesses that treated their employees terribly, including an extremely popular and revered New York City thrift attached to a life-saving nonprofit that was one of the most poorly run businesses I've ever had to be around for. However, on a larger scale, it's still better or less harmful than a business that uses exploitation on a global scale to function. My crappy experience there doesn't outweigh the global impact of other business practices on a larger scale. And to be clear, small businesses can, if they are run by thoughtful people, have a positive impact on their communities while also mitigating their impact on the planet. For one, 
small businesses have a larger positive impact on their communities than big box stores and Amazon. According to the U.S. Small Business Administration, when you spend $100 at a small business, $48 stay in the community. That's almost half. If you spend $100 at a big box store, only $14 stays in the community. That's bad. Imagine if you got a 14% on a test, you would totally be grounded. That's how I look at percentages. Small businesses create jobs in a way that big businesses do not. Since 1995, more than half of the jobs in the United States were created by small businesses. And by the way, if you have a job working for a small business and they aren't paying you or they're violating your labor rights or they're treating you shitty or anything else, you are protected by the same laws as big businesses. Now I will tell you, much like the writer of that email, After a couple really bad experiences working for small businesses, I was like, okay, I am only working for big corporations with big HR departments from now on, so I feel protected. Well, I'm here to tell you that I actually got treated even worse despite the big HR departments because those companies are only thinking about what they can legally face repercussions for. A great example I have is the job I left last year. After I put in my notice, the head of HR called me in and wanted to talk to me, kind of trying to convince me to stay with the company. And she said, you know, the thing about the CEO is, yes, he is, he yells a lot. He can be abusive. He humiliates people, but he's set in his ways. You know, you just have to like accept that. It's like no harm. Right. And I said, here's the thing I'm set in my ways also. And one of the ways I'm set in is that I will not be abused or humiliated at work. I will not let my job destroy my physical and mental health. I cannot work around this. And her feeling, she was kind of shocked by this because nothing he was doing was technically illegal, but it certainly was unethical, right? Big corporations tend to take that approach when it comes to protecting their workers. No matter what company you're working for and what the size is, you really need to reach out to the government agencies that are there to protect you to make that change, right? I don't think that small businesses get away with this. It's just that people don't know their rights because big businesses get away with it too, right? We need more education, around our rights as workers. And I think it's not a coincidence that we don't learn any of that in school, right? The next thing I'll say here is that small businesses redistribute wealth. Right now, a a few huge companies rake in most of the money. We already talked about it. Amazon, Walmart, Zara, Target, you name it. Making billionaires of their founders and CEOs and millionaires of their executives and shareholders. In fact, when you spend money at, say, Target, that money travels away from you and your community in a straight line, and it never comes back. A little tiny bit of that money goes into the pockets of workers and suppliers, but it's a much smaller part than you would think. And then the rest of the money continues to travel away from you and ends up with shareholders and executives. This is how we see one percenters taking on more and more of the wealth in our world. Meanwhile, money spent with small businesses tends to travel in circles to other members of the community and other small businesses. And if you're feeling as eat the rich as I always feel, then knowing that this money is staying with us regular people, it's a pretty big deal. Lastly, I'll just say it's too late for the biggest companies out there to magically transform into sustainable ethical brands because exploitation and waste are built into their business model. It is a way of doing business that will always prioritize profits over people. 
and getting them to change their ways would mean completely dismantling their current way of doing business. That's just not feasible. Over time, could it be? Sure, with some government regulation and all of us changing our behaviors collectively around consumerism, 100%, yes. But it's not gonna happen right now and it's gonna take a long time and a lot of work from everyone. The great thing is that small businesses are small and they can constantly make changes to be more sustainable and ethical because they are small, because it is easier, right? I always use the metaphor of like turning a bike, right? If I want to turn a bike around completely, it would be pretty easy. I would just turn in a circle. It would take like a second, right? That's a small business. Turning around a huge cruise ship, like those ones that have like roller coasters and water slides and shopping malls and movie theaters and all that stuff. They're real. They scare me. That's a whole other episode (laughs) right there. Turning around one of those ships is not easy. It literally takes like a whole day. That's what a big business is, right? And so if we want immediate change right now, while in tandem pushing for these larger changes, it is in our best interest to support small businesses who care about doing things the right way. Once again, that's not every small business out there. You'll find out pretty fast and then you don't support them anymore and you don't let your friends support them, right? That's where word of mouth and community is really important. Kate W., The other Kate we're hearing from in this episode had some great thoughts about the choices we make and how difficult they can be. I don't think there's anything wrong with Amanda suggesting small business is the future. It's not like small business is a single behemoth like Amazon or Timu or Shein. There's room for good ones and bad ones and all sorts of niches within a belief that small and local is usually going to be better than large and far away. This is a common topic on the ethical fashion subreddit, I also follow that one, that there is no way to hit all the ethical highlights at once and we must choose what we value most. So for some, that is centered around the environment, fibers, dyes, transportation, waste. Much will depend on the specific small business practices, but overall, I'd say advantage small business because of the waste generated at scale and local for the lower transportation emissions for finished goods. For others, ethical means fair wages and worker treatment. This one is very business specific, and I wouldn't say small is necessarily better than the large overall, but it is easier to find out if a small business treats their workers ethically because you can ask the people helping you directly. For others still, ethical is about the exploitation and use of animal products. Here too, it's very much about individual businesses and what they use. And some larger businesses are able to make more cost-effective vegan items because of the quantity of materials purchased. For others, ethical fashion is about reuse, quality, and recyclability. I think small wins out here as there's more motivation to manufacture quality items when you are closer to your consumer and smaller lots mean less waste and more reuse. And then there's ethical service to customers. Here we run into the difficulties of serving all sizes and shapes for small businesses who need to sell through the majority of items they make. Large business, I think, has the advantage of absorbing the cost of a larger size range and spreading material costs out, but small businesses that do custom are probably the most ethical on this point. It's a lot to think about, and I'm really grateful that Kate wrote all that out. It's all really good points, right? Once again, lots of nuance to be considered here. There's never like a simple black and white answer. But then again, I think we can still see that in most cases, small business comes out ahead. None of this means that you should be over shopping just to support small businesses. You should be shopping small when you need something. That's a big difference from sort of like mindless shopping. 
If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage.
Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So yes, we should be buying less stuff. And I think we are all doing that. Obviously, we need a lot more people to do that, as I said earlier, to make the kind of impact that we need. And if we get the majority of our society, honestly, even if it were a third of our society, I think it would be really impactful to just stop buying so much stuff. If they started repairing things and shopping secondhand and all these other behaviors that are an integral part of the slow fashion way of life, well, that would have a significant impact on our economy. And guess what? That's an entire area of economic thinking called degrowth. Right now, we look at economies both nationally and globally as an infinite growth situation. Basically, just like all of those big businesses, our leaders want and expect our economies to grow year after year into infinity by making and selling more stuff. Maybe for a while that was working, but guess what? (laughs) Now we are seeing that strategy creating climate change and deforestation, pollution, human exploitation, plastic waste, the plastic waste crisis, and so much more. Degrowth is possible and necessary, but it would be, um, for lack of a better adjective, a humongous change, and it's going to take time. That doesn't mean it's not out of the range of possibility, but it would kind of require this global handholding amongst all governments who are ready to make some massive funding and legislation changes that would change what it is to live on our planet right now. It would hinge on some very big shifts in the way our societies operate. I'm here for all of this, but I'm here to tell you it's a lot, right? For one, consumption would be reined in big time. For example, scaling back fossil fuel use. That means 
less cars and more public transportation. Most people would be making significant changes in how they get around. I'm here for it. I'm ready for like a subway everywhere. Seriously. I I hate driving and I get stressed out about cars. No more private jets. Not that that impacts really any of us here, but that's a big deal too. No more overproduction or creation of items that can't be repaired or recycled. That would mean the end of planned obsolescence, which has been fueling this constant economic growth since the middle of the last century. Factory farming of dairy and meat would be substantially declined, which would mean everyone has to rethink their diets and stop wasting so much food. Literally every aspect of every person's daily life would change. Public services would be improved. We're talking universal access for everyone to high quality healthcare, good foods, housing, education, childcare, et cetera. All these things that so many of us struggle to get. In theory, this would significantly narrow both the economic and quality of life gaps that exist throughout the world right now, massively improving access to education, housing, childcare, and healthcare would actually provide more options for all of the girl bosses who have been pushed into the realm of retail, service work, et cetera, because we would have more opportunities, right? Many of you longtime listeners know that I fell into a career in buying basically because the only job that would hire me when I was a young single mother was a retail store. Was it my dream? No. I wanted to be a writer and an art teacher. Neither of those were an option when I could barely afford rent and diapers, much less continuing education. And I also knew arts education was being cut from like every school around the country. So it wasn't really a great investment for me to take on that kind of debt. That's the other thing about this current stage of capitalism that we are all trying to survive. While we're all told that we have more freedom than ever, many of us are boxed in and trapped by financial circumstances. Here's what Maria had to say about that. Of course, not everyone is going to sell yarn or vintage or handmade soap, but also not everyone can have a job teaching algebra or being a librarian because both require master's degrees and a lot of us could barely afford college round one. I've been a barista, cashier, visual merchandiser, and store manager. I'm not cut out for much less and I'm 40. There's a ton of service industry lifers out there, and these girl boss side hustles can supplement a serious earning plateau from your day gig. There's also the dream, if you've spent your adulthood working in that sector, that you could someday escape it through hard work and cleverness and whatever else you could someday not have to be stuck in a job you hate. The idea of being a small business owner has a lot of appeal to some people, and while it's not for everyone, the people it's for don't have some of the options this person may have. Education and class are serious factors in the dreams and goals we feel like we can achieve. I feel the same way. I feel that so hard. I grew up thinking that the world was going to be my oyster because I worked hard and because I was smart and I was thoughtful and kind to people. And then I became an adult and realized that I wasn't going to get to do the things that I dreamed because of money. Christine had similar thoughts. She said, I don't know if small business is the future, but many of us who've struggled in other fields because of needing to commit to families, struggling with aging out of our fields or our bodies aging out of physical labor, or even due to neurodivergent minds not fitting into the corporate environments, 
most small businesses are just people trying to get by and make some extra money while doing what makes them feel good, responsible, resourceful in a world that forces us to rely on money. Yep, I agree. In fact, it's like so many people are working in small businesses because there aren't other options for them, but it may also be what they love doing or what is the right fit for them. And I I hate the idea of dismissing that, right? And so many people are working multiple jobs and their small business is just one part of it. Interestingly enough, another part of degrowth is reducing working time. This means lowering the retirement age, making it financially feasible for people to work only part-time, or even making a four-day work week the mandatory maximum. This could also mean eliminating salaried roles that call for unlimited hours. And it's no coincidence that reducing work hours is a key part of the degrowth strategy. Why? Because hustle culture, working like three jobs, salary jobs that basically require unlimited ability and working, those are all part of this growth year after year after year. Selling more and profiting more year after year requires more work. It requires cutting headcount so less people do more work. All of this overworking, the 40-hour work week, the resistance to working from home, all of these things that work against the quality of life of all of us who are working class, they are all the result of this strategy of infinite growth. Reducing working hours could also give people more opportunity to care for their health and well-being. Imagine that. And to be honest, I think working less hours would make people less likely to find solace in shopping because they would be happier in other ways. I think a lot of shopping overconsumption is a direct result of overworking, of trying to survive in a really stressful time to be alive. Another element of degrowth is creating jobs and training in new areas like green energy and making buildings more energy efficient and even administering all of these enhanced social programs. These job training programs could be focused on people who are losing their jobs as part of degrowth, you know, retail workers, fossil fuel employees, warehouse workers, all those people delivering Amazon packages. And I guess me, because if you think clothes horse is the job that pays my rent, you would be sorely wrong, and we'll get into that later. But if we are retraining all of these people for these new jobs, what happens to the artists of the world? Where do art and creativity fit into all of that? Where does the money come for people to be able to make art, right? Selena had some great thoughts on her drive as an artist in a capitalist economy. Fashion is art to many people. It is a way of therapy, self-expression, and joy. My job is not just to provide clothes to those people, but to inspire many to make their own clothes, to seize their own personal styles, and buy intentionally, sometimes at a cost to my own business. Should I feel guilty for wanting to share the happiness upcycling clothes brings me and feel guilty for making a living out of it? Absolutely not. The existence of my business creates beauty, inspiration, and hope for many people. We inspire others to start their own ventures and utilize their talents, feel like they have purpose, and make a living doing it. 
Danny had additional thoughts on the place of creativity and art within degrowth and the slow fashion world as a whole. She said, I myself have had many introspective or even existential moments where I wondered whether going from working as a corporate designer who enjoyed a consistent salary and benefits to having an income that solely relies on people literally buying stuff represented my core values at all. That shit is a hard pill to swallow. But I started out on this trajectory before I even understood that simply existing costs money. If I could have a chat with 15-year-old Danny and tell her to pursue psychology rather than fashion design because I would have an existential crisis in my early 30s having me question every choice I have made in my life, would I do it? Probably not. Because I know I would have still followed this path because when you are a creative person, sometimes you just can't think rationally and you do the damn thing. And as Selena so eloquently said, the world needs the creative output of individuals like ourselves, whether they believe their creativity is worthy of compensation or not. It's hard for me to imagine a world without art, whether it's visual, written, music, dance, you name it, because Art is such a big part of my life and the lives of the people I love. You know, Dustin is a musician. I went to art school to be a painter, and I spend an awful lot of time writing and creating content. These things have major value to humanity, but they aren't really supported financially. So most creative people have some other kind of job or side hustle or business that gives them the financial runway to make art. You know what? I actually think this is a great time to talk about Clothes Horse, the finances of it, and how guests are chosen for the podcast. Let's start with the guests. On a typical weekday, I receive about 10 requests for guest appearances on Clothes Horse. Some are from big companies who are looking for some free marketing. They get an instant no response from me. I have a no big business policy in terms of guests. Some are from small businesses who are also looking for some free marketing. To those people, I always ask, okay, well, what is your area of expertise, your experience? What could you bring to the table in terms of knowledge for the closed horse community? Sometimes the requests to be guests are just from people who want to be on a podcast. That's a phenomenon in itself. I ask them the same question. What expertise do you bring to the table? What can you teach my listeners? Now, obviously, I might be receiving 10 requests a day for guest appearances, but I am not putting out 10 episodes a day. So I'm clearly saying no to a lot of people. And that's because I'm looking for people who bring information and ideas to our community. I am intentionally curating a message because I really do have a vision for what the podcast is, what it means, and the impact I want it to have. I am not kidding when I say that an individual episode of the podcast ranges from 12 to 20 hours of work, not including all the other time I put in on social media content, answering emails, and healing really tedious administrative stuff. I'm putting about 60 hours of work into Close Horse each week. So of course, I'm very passionate about putting great stuff out into the world and really thinking through any guest that I choose to spend that time with. Yes, there are a lot of guests on the pod who are small business owners. Why? I want you to think about it. 
This is a podcast whose primary mission is to uncover and explain why this industry is going so wrong. It's really hard to get people who are still working within the industry to be guests on the show because you know what? They are afraid of messing up their future employment options or even losing their current jobs. And I get that. I would have felt, felt, I would have felt the same way when I was still working within the industry. I wouldn't be able, I would not be able to make clothes horse if I had decided that I was never going back. So most of my guests are people who no longer work within the industry. Well, they have to make a living somehow. And that often means they have started their own small business. That doesn't mean they are living the dream or anything like that. In fact, all of the former industry professionals who now work for themselves that I know are really struggling. They make a lot less money than they did working for corporate fast fashion or any, any other corporate job they had. And that's a sacrifice they've made to live a more ethical life. In fact, Danny said, I also think folks who are not entrepreneurs and small businesses don't fully grasp the plight of working for themselves. The amount of work that is done without payment is very hard to grasp for folks who are paid a salary, paid by the hour, or paid for their output. The literal hustle to earn every single dollar while I once was paid to do plenty of hard and stressful work, but also my share of busy work and even times online shopping between projects I was working on or in the moments before that I had to waste time before I had to attend a meeting in which I would listen to the same conversations happen over and over again about absolutely nothing that mattered and where my perspective would have never been appreciated. I got paid for all of those times. I think all of us have moments now where we are considering throwing in the towel and pursuing a nine to five. I, I hear you. Danny, this is one of the reasons I have gone back to corporate jobs every time I try to get out of it because it is really hard, okay? There's never any downtime when you work for yourself and it's always so uncertain. And I'm aware that all of my guests are really hustling to stay afloat financially, to feed their kids, to pay rent, to get healthcare and just exist. Furthermore, being a guest on this show is about three hours of unpaid labor, First, our initial conversation where we outline the episode and identify any research needs, then about two hours of recording. And can it be fun? Oh, for sure. It's great. But I can't pay for that time. And it is really valuable. It has value. But one way I can repay the favor and support amazing people who are brave enough to come on Clothes Horse and share their experiences One way I can repay them for that is by giving them some time to plug their business. No one is coming in with, hey, you better go buy something right now. They're just reminding you that they are there. That feels like a fair trade-off to me. I also just want to add that when it comes to educating others about overconsumption and waste and the ethical and environmental crisis of fast everything... It's small business owners who are doing all of that unpaid labor and dealing with trolls along the way. I see it playing out over and over again on social media. And I appreciate that hard work, maybe because I know firsthand how hard it is. So of course, I'm going to encourage listeners to follow and support these businesses, not to overshop, not to buy things they don't need, but to keep them in mind when they do need something. Okay. Now, let's talk about the financial situation that is Clothes Horse. 
It is very important to me that every decision involving Clothes Horse is as ethical as possible and aligns with my personal values. After all, I am Clothes Horse. This is my baby. Perhaps you might call it my pony. Maybe you'd even call it my foal. I don't know. In some regards, Clothes Horse is very successful. It reaches a lot of people, and it is often in the top 20 or 30 fashion podcasts in the world every week. And yeah, I am really proud of that. Lots of people are listening, and hopefully it's inspiring some change within them. That is what keeps me going. Honestly, my favorite messages are always like, hey, I listened to this episode, and now I'm doing things differently. Like, fuck, yeah, that's what I want to hear. That makes all of this hard work worthwhile. But from a financial perspective, Clothes Horse is an abysmal failure, which actually makes me really sad because I want to prove that a business can behave ethically and still be financially sustainable. That is unfortunately not the case with Clothes Horse, even though I keep hoping that it will change. Christine sent me a meme this week that said, it's not hypocritical to critique capitalism while participating in it. We're literally critiquing it because we are forced to participate in order to survive. And nowhere is that truer than the world of podcasting. Let me tell you, when I started this, I had no idea about the podcast industrial complex. There are podcasts out there for sure that bring in a ton of money. For example, even your your wrong about brings in about twenty five to thirty thousand dollars a month solely on Patreon. That's my best guess, without doing any advertising. It's literally a full time paying job for the host. Now it's only Sarah Marshall, uh, Michael Hobbs left, and that means that she has time to create additional content, fully research and things th- think things through, and pay people for editing, producing, administrative stuff, etc., and pay herself and work on a book. It's the dream. But the fact is that most podcasts aren't making a ton of money, and that's because there is an industry that is built off of charging people for the privilege of creating a podcast. Yes, my friends, it's the podcast industrial complex, and it is making rich people. The people who are getting rich are not the people making the podcasts. First off, there are the recording platforms, which can cost anywhere from $20 to about $100 a month. I personally use Riverside because it allows me to have guests who don't have computers. And that's a really big deal because platforming people who usually aren't heard is very important to me. Also, the sound quality on a real podcasting platform is significantly better than, say, using Zoom, which a lot of people use. Some people even use uh, Google Meetup, also free, but the sound quality is bad. You can't mix individual tracks. Next, there's the podcast hosting platform. Yeah. Yeah. Here's something I didn't know before I started a podcast. I don't just upload this to Apple or Spotify or whatever. Nope, that's not how it works. You have to pay a service to host it. And then all of those platforms pick it up via RSS. And guess what? The more listeners a a show gets, the more that hosting service costs. I also pay an additional $50 a month so that the podcast is converted into a video with captions on YouTube. This was requested by listeners who process information better in that format. And you know what? Accessibility is a really big deal to me. That means I also pay to have episode transcripts created. The affordable services for this use AI to do it, which means they require a ton of editing and judging to make them readable. Seriously, sometimes the final product is very confusing to me um, that I download. So this usually requires a couple of hours of work for me to get them in shape. Once again, accessibility, very important to me. 
Oh, yeah. There's also a subscription for the editing software I use to edit, you know, the episode. And Dustin bought a few expensive plugins for audio mixing last year that we need to counteract common issues with guest audio. And I'm lucky when it comes to editing and audio mixing because Dustin taught me how to do the editing myself. That saves a lot of money. We're also looking at more hours of unpaid work. Dustin does the audio mixing for free, but I promise I make it up to him by doing his laundry and cooking most of his meals. I also pay for subscriptions to a variety of media sources because it feels unethical to try to get all of you to support my work while then trying to find sneaky ways to consume information for free on my end. So I pay for all that stuff. Very important to me. And then there's the equipment. Last year, I had to buy a new laptop because my audio card blew out and it was not repairable. Thanks, Apple. That's great. That meant I couldn't hear anything for editing, which meant I couldn't work on the podcast. I bought a new laptop on a payment plan, about $160 a month for a year. I think I'm going to be paying it off in another month or two. And I'm glad to have that $160 not coming out of my checking account anymore. The interface I used for recording also died last year. It was a great year, clearly. So I had to buy a new one. Dustin couldn't fix the old one, no matter how hard he tried. And that's planned obsolescence for you. So that was another $300. I need a new microphone stand really badly. This one won't stay in place. And Dustin says the issue cannot be repaired, but I'm holding off for that on that for as long as possible. And you know what? There are also various graphic design related subscriptions, including Photoshop and Figma that I use for creating social media content. Basically, the long story short, if you're still listening, is that making a podcast costs a lot of money and most people who are starting a podcast would have no idea. So how do you fund a podcast knowing that there are all these expenses? Well, in the beginning, I used my unemployment payments and I sold most of my clothes to make clothes horse. That's where all that money went. In 2021, I took that terrible job in Austin to help pay for clothes horse and, you know, my survival. But ultimately, the cost of living in Austin was so high that I ended up picking up extra side work to fund clothes horse. By then, there was Patreon money coming in, but after Patreon took its share and got to like pay payments on computers and all this other shit, it was only covering about half the expenses. Now I'm working for myself because once again, Close Horse does not pay me. I would love for it to do that, and maybe someday it will. I also would love to hire someone to help me, but those feel like big dreams that are still kind of out of reach. Who knows? Who knows what will change over time? You know, most podcasts are funded by advertising selling swag, and Patreon. Naturally, many podcast creators like myself are just self-funding. Obviously, I refuse to do merch. Stop asking me. Here's the thing with advertising. It can pay well if you have enough listeners. You're paid on your listen metrics. But the bulk of podcast advertising comes from businesses that are not a good fit for Close Horse and its ethics. Some podcasts just agree to let any ads be inserted and get a payment based on that. So great example of that is I was listening to a podcast that I love about Judy Bloom books like last year. And I know I'm like in this enough to know how this works. So I have like no judgment against them. They don't know. They clearly have the plugin where they get paid every time someone hears an ad. It's probably like five cents because that's this shit is not lucrative. And I kept getting ads for Greg Abbott's campaign, the horrible governor of Texas, who is against everything I believe in. I also, at one point, received an ad for the NRA. So naturally, I was 
like, wow, I'm so glad I don't use that service. It's not worth getting five cents a listen or whatever. Like I said, these podcasts don't know what listeners are going to hear. And I think it's also like totally regionally based and probably all kinds of other data that they have about the listeners. So they knew I was in Texas. They're giving me Greg Abbott and NRA content. But you also might hear ads from McDonald's or Verizon, like big companies, Stitch Fix, I've heard a lot. Naturally, this putting ads in podcasts situation is a big industry in itself. And I have no doubt that the platforms enabling these ads are taking the bulk of the money. Next, you can use services like Asa or Zencaster to connect you with advertisers. Still, most of the advertisers are not a good fit for Close Horse. And these platforms take 60% of the ad payment. So we're talking like $20 to $40 left for a podcast like Close Horse. Once again, the podcasters are not making the money here. Other companies are. Lastly, you can do like I do and take ads from small businesses, which I do when I can, and I offer very low prices for that. The series of blurbs you hear between segments are actually Patreon supporters who pay $25 to be included for the month. It's a very hot deal for a podcast with a listener base that's the size of Close Horse. But once again, I want to be supporting this community as much as I can. The other thing I'll say is that in the world of sustainability... You notice I didn't say slow fashion. I meant like sustainability, sustainable fashion. When I say those, I probably mean a lot of greenwashing. It is the companies that uh, do the most greenwashing that have the biggest budgets for supporting creators in the slow fashion community, your Allbirds, your Parade, you know, that kind of stuff. And I want to be clear that I have turned down partnerships with many brands in that space over the past couple of years because I don't feel like it matches my values even though it would be a check, right? I just, it's not okay. And I, I, I want to lead by example and I don't want to shovel that stuff your way, you know? I did, once upon a time, have big dreams that Patreon could be the thing that keeps Close Horse going without advertising, but it just isn't. At best, Close Horse has 100 supporters at any given time. I don't have time to make additional content because I have to work at other jobs to support myself. So it's not necessarily enticing to potential supporters. And also Patreon takes a big chunk of that money too. Like so many big companies make all the money off of creators. One more reason that I really love small businesses actually, because they're there to support each other. And it's the small businesses in our community that, I don't know, show me the most support, even just by sharing my content on social media. Like it's a really big deal to me. I do not take the support of our community lightly. It's interesting when you think about it, how in the world that we live in right now, the people making the stuff in many cases aren't the ones making the living, right? I also want to be clear that people are not paying to be guests. And I don't want anyone to feel like they are being sold to when they listen. That is, that's the kind of thing that makes me cry thinking about it. But I also live within this capitalist system and it sucks. If ads and small business owners as guests make you uncomfortable, I totally get it. You, no hard feelings here. This is probably not the podcast for you, right? There are so many other podcasts out there that you you can enjoy, that can keep you company, and maybe they will do things in a way that fits your values better. I'm trying my hardest to do things that reflect my personal values and my commitment to our community. And it's going to be hard to change my mind on that. 
because then what is close worse, you know? Danny put it best in her response to the email when she said, Like the listener, I too wish we lived in a world where objects and specific services were not the only thing people feel are worth money. Or perhaps more along the lines of what they are suggesting, I wish I didn't live in a world where money is required to continue one's existence. If society valued experience and content the way we do material things, maybe we wouldn't need to be selling our creations to make a living. The podcast the writer is listening to, how much do they value the conversations they have the privilege to be listening to? They say, sometimes the ethical choice is not buying or selling anything, not goods, not services, nothing, which in itself is a wholly entitled and privileged perspective coming from someone who is enjoying a podcast that comes at the expense of a person and their guest who puts an incredible amount of time and effort into something that the listener is not paying them for. Does this person value your podcast, the one they are critiquing enough to be a Patreon subscriber, or are they owed your time and experiences without recompense? So while the listener detests that some people need to make a living off of their output and clearly will not be making a purchase, they also don't value the non-material content they are consuming. I too wish I lived in a utopia where we all had the freedom of sharing our creations, both physical and not, without needing to then go and pay money to keep a roof over our head and keep the heat on and pay for the food I eat. But alas, this is not the reality of life in the modern age. Danny captures something here that has been on my mind for a long time. Every once in a while, and it's kind of the reason I turned this email into an old an entire episode, because I think this is, we need to be having these conversations, right? And there's a lot of conversations happening within this episode in response to this email. And I loved what everybody who's read it has brought to the table about this, because it's it starts a lot of different conversations about who we are as a community and what we value, right? And what we want to do next and how we get there. So every once in a while, I'll get a message that says, why do you have ads if you hate capitalism? Or why should we pay for your work since that's capitalism? Well, the reality is that I live in this world that is in capitalism and making a podcast costs a lot of money. I try so hard to make this work as accessible to as many people as possible because, and I could be delusional here, I think this information is important. But I'll tell you, when someone asks me why I have ads or something snarky along those lines, what I really hear is your work has no value. And if that is the case, why are you listening? Seriously, you probably don't mean to say that to me, but that's how it feels. But I will say this, if we're truly going to change our economy and change the nature of our society to shift away from consuming so much stuff... We are going to have to reevaluate our relationship with art, information, and ideas. We will have to stop valuing stuff over everything else. Information has value. Art has value. Inspiration has value. And guess what? Good information goes away when we don't pay for it. Art goes away. Everything goes away and we are left with big newspaper conglomerates and Fox News and sponsored content on blogs and in magazines and a lot less truth and art. Over the past year, I have seen a lot of voices in the slow fashion space disappear as more and more were unable to keep up the grind of working a full-time job to support their second unpaid full-time job, sharing information and building community within the slow fashion world when it felt like so many individuals were fighting against their work. 
I've also seen so many small businesses who are also doing the work of spreading the word of slow fashion. I've seen so many of them close up shop over the last few months and even the last few weeks, and it makes me really sad. When it comes to the kind of media we are left with, well, basically we are only left with things that big companies like Amazon and Target are willing to use for advertising purposes in hopes of, of course, selling us more stuff. In fact, our unwillingness to support writing and art and content over actual stuff helps companies like Amazon and Target control what we see, fuel overconsumption, you know, engage in union busting and so much more because they're not going to support content that tells the true story of what their workers experience. They're not going to support content creation that talks about the supply chains or the environmental issues or planned obsolescence or all of the other things that are important conversations in the slow fashion movement. To be honest, Small businesses are an integral part of my life, and I've made it that way because I believe in them as part of a better world of degrowth and reduced consumption and ethics and care about humans and our planet and community. I see them as integral employers, integral contributors to their individual communities, and they are doing so much unpaid labor in terms of community building and education. So yes, hi, my name is Amanda McCarty. Welcome to Close Horse. Small business is the future. That's where I stand on this. And I'm actually glad that I received this email. So I had time to think about it, write about it, read about it, talk to others, and really see where our community lands on this. And honestly, in many ways, it gave me a roadmap for how I can continue to support small businesses and shape their stories throughout this year because small businesses are in trouble, my friends, okay? People have no problem buying even more stuff from Amazon than they did the year before and even more stuff from Target than they did the year before and Walmart and enabling all of their, those big business year-over-year growth plans. But they didn't do that for small businesses this year and a lot of people really struggled and suffered and many quit. So I, one of my missions for this year beyond community and all the other stuff that I do is figuring out how we, how I can help ensure that people stop giving all their money to Amazon and Walmart and Target and what have you and start shopping small more often. This is serious business to me. Small business is the future. So now I want to hear from all of you. What are your thoughts? on what we've talked about in this episode and the thoughts that were shared by others in the email itself. Where do you think small business comes into play? Do you think it's greenwashing to talk about it? How do you think we can get more people involved in the slow fashion movement? And how do we talk to them about the things that are important to us, that are important parts of the slow fashion way of life to get them on board with us? And most importantly, how are we going to build and strengthen this community in 2024. So like I said at the top, you can send me an email, you can record an audio message and email it my way, but you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I think this is going to be an ongoing conversation throughout the year. And I guess I'm glad that this is what the first episode of the year is because it's a conversation we needed to have, you know, and we need to continue having, and I'm, I'm glad to facilitate it. 
Okay, that's all for this week. I have been writing and recording now for 12 hours and I'm running out of steam. I'm hoping to try to get this edited tonight, but this week's episode might come out a week late because I'm hitting a little bit of a wall. The last thing I'll say is thanks as always for listening to Close Horse, uh, written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing, uh, well, you could send me a really nice email. I would appreciate that. But you could also leave a rating or a review on your favorite platform. Most importantly, you could subscribe and you could tell your friends to listen as well. If you want to support Close Horse financially, there are many ways you can do that. You can do that at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. You can do a one-time donation via Kofi. This was Dustin's great idea, and it seems like a lot of you like it. Um, you can find the link to that on my website in the show notes, or even I'm pretty sure in my Instagram profile. Um, you can also take advantage of the Apple premium subscription, which really just gives you access to our archives, but also just lets you to support close horse in a really easy just an easy way, right? Um, if you can't afford to support Close Horse financially, but you like what I'm doing around here, you know the best thing you can ever do is recommend it to friends, share my content on social media, um, and talk to people about what you've learned and why it's important to you. Because this year, we're going to make some serious change, and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen next. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and our audio support and unpacking boxes in the snow and barely crying. We didn't cry. If we would have cried, it would have frozen to our faces. I feel like we're really tough now. <laughs> we got really tough in the past few weeks. Anyway, thanks to all of you uh, for listening, and I'll be back next week when we'll go back into why clothes are kind of garbage right now. Bye. Bye.